From the Political Science Department at UW-Madison, I'm Adam Wigger. I'm Mia Wagner. And I'm Michael Mikowski. In this podcast series, we will speak with UW-Madison faculty members and other experts to hear their thoughts on the COVID-19 pandemic, as well as the political and global changes that the situation has warranted. This is 1050 Bascom, COVID-19. Today's podcast was recorded on Monday, April 6th, 2020 at approximately 1 p.m. Information in this podcast may have changed by the time you listen or by the time we post. So please, when considering all information regarding the Wisconsin election on April 7th, please double check any information regarding changes to the election. Today on 1050 Baskin, we are happy to have Professor Ryan Owens to talk about the recent arguments heard before the U.S. Supreme Court regarding abortion admitting privileges, as well as the decision to postpone the Wisconsin primary and Supreme Court election here at home. Professor Owens, a native Wisconsinite, has a political science degree from the University of Wisconsin and a law degree from the UW-Madison Law School. He earned his Ph.D. in political science at Washington University in St. Louis and is currently the director of the Tommy Thompson Center on Public Leadership. Professor Owens, thank you so much for joining us today. Yeah, thanks for having me. So I think we want to jump right in. Um, We just got some news that the Wisconsin governor, Tony Evers, has indeed made the decision to postpone in-person voting tomorrow. So just to give some background context to our listeners, Wisconsin has been headlines because it was set to be the only state to hold in-person voting in the primary and Wisconsin Supreme Court election tomorrow. Um, On a special session Saturday, the Wisconsin legislature quickly shot this down. Um, And like I said, most recently, the announcement has come from the governor that he is indeed postponing the election. Um, Could you provide some context to the legality of postponing elections and this most recent decision from the governor and battle happening in the legislature? Sure. Yeah, I mean, it's uh, I'd have to look a little bit more carefully at the executive order itself to look at the grounds on which the governor is making this decision. Um, we'll, we'll have to take a look at that at some point. I suspect that there will be legal challenges to this. Um, you know, it's an interesting thing. I think everybody wants to make sure that the election goes off, uh, in a safe and, and responsible manner. Um, but you know, this last minute cancellation and chaos is just, it's not good. It, it looks disorderly. It's chaotic. Uh, I, I think if this was something on the governor's mind, he should have tried to do something much sooner uh, than the day before the election on this. I, it just seems, uh, uh, we, I think we all certainly sympathize with what's going on right now, and we want to make sure that we contain the virus as, as well as we can. But my goodness, these are actions that ought to have been taken weeks ago. Yeah, so there's also a debate happening around the extended absentee voting, um, which Wisconsin Republicans are vowing to take to the Supreme Court. Could you maybe explain the situation there and give your, give your expertise onto the situation happening and how that's developed? Right. Well, I mean, so there were a a number of questions involved here, whether or not you could uh, extend the uh, the date uh, by which uh, the the state had to receive election ballots or absentee ballots. Um, Originally, under state law, of course, that was going to be uh, as of tomorrow that they were supposed to have them receive or or postmarked, I should say, uh, by tomorrow. Um, Sort of at the at the last minute here, uh, a number of people 
uh, filed suit in the Western District of Wisconsin to try to get that extended, along with a few other things. Uh, originally, the Western District of Wisconsin, the district court judge there said, yes, it's uh, it's permissible to extend the deadline for those absentee ballots out until April 13th. Uh, originally, he also said, in addition to that, um, that uh, you could, under the circumstances, waive current Wisconsin law which required people sign uh, people filling out absentee ballots that they do so in the presence of a witness. Uh, mm-hmm. And what uh, what that district court judge said is that uh, we could we could uh, move forward notwithstanding that witness provision that you didn't have to comply with it so long as you provided some sort of an affidavit saying you know I live by myself there's nobody around or something like that um, that got appealed and the Seventh Circuit Court of Appeals which oversees Wisconsin decided to uphold the extension of the absentee ballot deadline, but reversed on the, the witness provision. It said, no, no, you still have to follow state law, that there has to be a witness there when you send in an absentee ballot. Now, of course, with the governor's executive order extending the, uh, the voting date into June or moving it to June, it's, it's unclear how in the world this is going to move forward. Um, I suspect there will be people concerned about you know, election fraud, let's say you already filled out an absentee ballot, you know, are you going to maybe try to get another one down the road or something? You can imagine all of these things are going to be, are going to be raised. That's why you just don't do these things the day before an election. Right. It's obviously been a big political battle, um, but is there any sort of precedent for something like this to happen? I guess something I've been questioning myself and has been a question in the media um, is how to sort of balance the legality of things and this time of crisis, as you yourself also mentioned. So legally, yeah. is this a plausible move? Can this be done? Well, again, I don't know. I'd have to look at the grounds on which he, he states he has the authority to do this. And and look, I think you're right. <clears throat> Excuse me. This isn't or at least ought not to be a partisan issue. Um, it's a leadership issue, right? And, and you want to make sure that people are receiving a consistent message uh, that's stable. Honestly, again, it's just that, you know, it, it's a last minute sort of chaotic thing. You've got to have a consistent message coming uh, coming out of the governor's office. And so I think this is going to catch a lot of people off guard, this executive order. It's sure to be challenged uh, in a very short order. We'll see what happens. Um, I don't know what the law is on this particular matter. I have to look at it as an executive order. I have to look at the constitution on that, but it's it's sure to be challenged. But I, you know, I can tell you this, that it's just it's unfortunate that all of this stuff has become a partisan issue. Um, it need not be. It, it's an important issue for everybody's safety and health, and we ought to be able to be mature enough in this state to be able to deal with it accordingly. I have a quick follow-up. Um, if you guys, I don't know if one of you are thinking this. I'm just curious, what does, all of the articles I'm reading right now are saying there is going to be a quick legal challenge. Ryan, what does that look like, and is it like does it potentially make it so that some of these elections aren't even going to be valid and i mean i just is I, i'm just trying to figure out what that looks like and what that implications are for everybody running right now well I yeah mean, well that, that's the first thing i think of you know i mean you look at um you look at the the people who are running right now uh you know dan kelly jill karofsky you know they've been waging a campaign that was based on a final date and you spend your money uh, accordingly, right? You say, I've got these uh, amounts of resources and here's how I'm gonna spend it in the lead up to the election. Um, and now that election date gets pushed out. Uh, you know, if people were making a, a push at the end there to spend down their money in time for the election, well, what in the world do they do now? Um, what, what, what campaign finance laws have to say about this? 
Um, are you still able to to receive money, hard money, in this time period? I mean, w- I mean, we just we don't really know right now. We'd have to look into this. So, you know, you've got the challengers. You've got concerns about voter fraud, as I said before, with people who have already voting, maybe casting another vote. And then, you know, I mean, one of the things that people have complained about with early voting is that uh, you get people who come in and they vote early. Uh, and then all of a sudden, before the actual election date, something big happens uh, and they haven't been able to vote you know, with that in mind. Right. So let's say you vote three weeks early and then two weeks out of the election, there's some big scandal that happens. Well, you've already cast your vote. Well, think about it now when you get people like myself who have voted absentee already like a week or two ago. Um, and now we're not going to have this election until June. Well, what happens if something comes out in the next two months about a candidate that we didn't know about? I mean, these kinds of things happen in, uh, you know, that's, again, why you've got to have a message of consistency that comes out of here. You make a decision, you stick to it. Um, and, and I wouldn't at all be surprised if the courts uh, are not satisfied with this executive order just because of that. I mean, there's a principle that you don't throw everything out of whack the day before an election. I think it's called the Purcell principle. Um, and, you know, I, I think that's something that courts are going to consider very heavily. Um, probably what will happen is uh, parties will challenge the governor's executive order as unconstitutional or violative of some other statutory grounds. They'll seek an injunction. Um, and then the, the federal district court will have to determine whether to enjoin that order. Um, and it likely will get appealed to the Seventh Circuit. We'll have to you know, decide something really, really quickly, uh, because as we all know, the election was supposed to be tomorrow, Tuesday. Yeah, I, I just want to kind of pick your brain, Professor. Obviously, we have to follow the rule of law and like, follow what we've established here and codified in law. But is this not a situation that kind of requires some kind of extra constitutional or super constitutional like we've we've never encountered something like this ever. well that's not that's not true that, that's not true we have in fact encountered lots of things like this before just not in our lifetimes well well then can you speak to that at all well sure i mean you know we had uh, pandemics in the past the uh, spanish flu um you know other cases polio i mean there have been many things like this in the past um it's just it's not been in our lifetime so um you know we've sort of forgotten, I think, how to deal with some of these issues. And, um, you know, you, you asked the, the question about, you know, is this sort of an emergency? Is this a problem? Well, yeah, of course it is. I think it absolutely is. Um, and, you know, that's why you try to work with agencies on the ground with the Elections Commission weeks ahead of time and say, look, if we've got to pull the trigger on this, are you prepared? Uh, and last I checked, the governor hadn't even contacted the Elections Commission to determine whether they had the capacity to do a mail-only vote. Uh, he hadn't even reached out to them. So, you know, you you want to prepare yourself so that if it comes to this, you're ready to go with it. Um, you know, and, and as to the, you know, do, do we waive things in the, the face of constitutional calamities, uh, things like that? Um, yeah, well, I'm certainly right. Lincoln thought so, and I think he was right on that. But I think if you you look at every sort of you know uh, two bit dictator across the world, that's usually how they wind up accreting power is to say like we're in a crisis here. We've got to wave the wave the laws in order to uh, to overcome it at the time. Now, I'm certainly not saying that the governor is is like that, but I, what I am saying is that we have to be very very cautious about throwing things um, out of whack, uh, you know, in the face of things like this. I'm. 
I'm I'm wondering how though we can put things like the Spanish flu in 1918 and polio into the modern context. Why like, can't you? Like how how are we? I I just feel like the the world looks so different in the way that we the way that we vote the the institutions that we have built up are are so different now. Um, I guess that's just my thought process. Yeah, well, I mean, that's certainly an empirical question. I think um, I think that would be taking it a little bit too far to say that things are so different now that we can't look to those uh, times as uh, as examples. I think we surely can. You know, hopefully we we have learned some things from them uh, to be sure. Um, but you know, again, I th- I think you know we we have to keep our eye on this. You know, the governor, to his credit, was ahead of the game when it came. Uh, to the uh, uh, to, to to the safer at home order, right? Uh, we can quibble around the edges about the treatment of religion and things like that with it, but he was well ahead of a lot of states when he issued that order. To his credit, and that's what's so surprising about this is that he had dug in like an Alabama tick originally that we were going to have this election today, um, come hell or high water. And then now that he's flipped on this, it's that's what makes it even more chaotic. Um, so, you know, we'll, we'll see what happens. I mean, I think we all can agree on the fact that we want this election to take place in a safe and orderly environment. Um, it's, you know, where the disagreement, I think, comes from people is like, you know, when you make decisions, how you make them. Um, you know, and I, I'm just, I'm glad that I'm not the ones having to make the, the, these decisions right now because nobody's happy about them. Maybe just one more question to wrap up the talk on this Wisconsin decision happening. Um, and maybe this is just showing my ignorance of the process and how that works, how the whole legal system operates. But working to the last minute on something like this, on such an important decision, I'm kind of just curious of the logistics of it. So how do courts react to things this quickly on the ground, in the courthouse, in the municipal offices? How does this really work and what does this look like? What sorts of people are taking what kind of action? Yeah, um, that's a good question. Uh, it's it's a little bit tougher, I think, at the at the district court, the trial court level, uh, right? Because you you know the, these courts already have things scheduled. They may already have trials, you know, going, um, and they're going to have to determine uh, things like injunctions in, in in a very short order. So, um, you know, what may happen is something like this is important enough that even if there's an ongoing case, you know, the trial court judge might take a brief recess come in, uh, hear some arguments on this injunction, and then issue an order immediately, like from the bench. You might get some written uh, memo shortly thereafter, but you can you can imagine that there's not much time to do this. So the judge and, um, uh, and his or her law clerks will, uh, you know, try to get something out in written form very, very quickly, but uh, oftentimes issue uh, an order from the bench and then follow it up. And then subsequently, you're going to appeal, you know, immediately to the Seventh Circuit. So you'll uh, file that docket electronically with the Seventh Circuit. Um, the clerks uh, and the, uh, the the career staff that work in that circuit will take a look at it very quickly, summarize, uh, get the information in front of the judges, and they'll just have to get on the phone with one another and have a conference and figure out what they're going to do. So uh, you know, with things like this that are of uh, where time is of the essence, they can move. Uh, very quickly. Of course, they move with less information than they typically, you know, they typically have, and that's that's difficult for them. So, you know, we'll we'll see what happens. We're going to get a ruling, I think, shortly, um, and then you know, who knows what happens after that. Right. Thanks for your insight into that. It's uh, 
exciting time to be having this podcast. And I'm sure probably by the end of this recording, things will have changed. So um, <laughs> <Right>. thank you. <laughs> I guess we can, uh, Adam, then we'll move on to um, abortion cases. So yeah, in, uh, in March, the Supreme Court heard arguments in the first major abortion case since uh, two of President Trump's nominees, Brett Kavanaugh and Neil Gorsuch, joined the court. The case is uh, pursuant to admitting privileges with hospitals and abortion providers. Um, if you can, can you just give us an overview of the case? Yeah, I'd be happy to. Um, so this is actually, I don't know if you want to call it a sequel, um, but th th this is the second time that the court has heard a case on admitting privileges uh, in uh, four years. All right. So uh, back in 2016, the court decided a case called Whole Women's Health. Um, and the facts of that case were very similar to the one uh, to the facts at issue in this particular case. You're talking to me about this term, the um, uh, uh, June Medical. Um, so what happened is the state legislature uh, in Texas in that first case passed a law, said that um, any any doctor who was performing abortion had to have something that's called admitting privileges at a hospital within 30 miles from where the abortions um, are performed, okay? And what admitting privileges uh, are, what it means is that uh, if there is a problem during the course of the abortion that you're providing at the clinic, if the, um, the patient has to be transported to the hospital, you need to be able to have a relationship with that hospital where they let you admit your patients there and work on them in that hospital. Right. So you have a relationship with a hospital. You are able to admit your patients into that hospital and work on them. Now, the what happened in the Texas case uh, was that uh, a number of abortion providers challenged that uh, legislation, saying that uh, if that law were to go into effect, it would basically shut down the majority of abortion clinics in the state. And as a consequence, then the law would impose uh, what's called an undue burden on a woman's right to have an abortion. Now, that undue burden standard comes from the Casey decision that the court uh, decided in the early 1990s. There, the court said that um, uh, women have a, have a right to an abortion, uh, basically pre-viability, um, and the, the state cannot uh, present a substantial obstacle in the path of getting that abortion in a way that would uh, present an undue burden on the, on the woman. So in 2016, the court had to look at whether that Texas statute imposed an undue burden on women seeking abortions. Now, uh, that opinion written by Justice Breyer, a 5-4 decision, uh, joined in by Justice then-Justice Kennedy, uh, ruled that uh, that Texas law that imposed the admitting privileges requirement uh, did in fact present an undue burden on women. Why? They said essentially what happens is the costs of that legislation outweighed the benefits. That if you look at who benefits from, uh, from these 30-mile admitting privileges requirements, it's essentially, at least according to the court, nobody. Why? because uh, women who get um, medical abortions, that is, they go into a clinic, they take a pill, and then they go home, if they have any complications from that procedure, they're going typically to have them at home, 
right, which is away from that clinic. And if they were going to go to the hospital at all, it would likely be to their local hospital and not the one by the abortion clinic where they obtained uh, the abortion. And so looking at those data, the court said, look, the, the, the benefits from this thing are minuscule. There are, it's very rare that anybody has uh, some sort of a problem during the course of their visit to the abortion clinic where they would have to go to the hospital. And consequently, the benefits there are outweighed by the costs. All right. So that was the Texas statute in the Texas case out of 2016. Now, you sort of alluded to one of the issues here when you say this is the first time this case uh, is coming up uh, in front of uh, President Trump's two nominees. Now, a lot of people are suggesting that that's, you know, the court is hearing this right now because they're going to undo the whole women's health decision that the court made in 2016. And it's a consequence of the two new justices on the court. I think there's some truth to that. In fact, I think there's a lot of truth to it. But there's something else that people haven't really talked a whole lot about coming out of that 2016 decision, Whole Women's Health, and that is <clears throat> that the court shouldn't have decided that case in the first place. Okay, There's a concept in the law called race judicata, which means essentially once a case has been decided fully on the merits and finally decided, that you can't relitigate it. You can't file suit again. Right. So let's say, um, you know, I, I go over to your house and I slip and fall on your sidewalk and I try to sue you. And the court says, no, you're not liable. I appeal it. And the appeals courts, they all say, no, he's not liable. End of story. Right. That's what we all learn about. Well, what happened in this case is this suit originally went through. It got appealed to the Fifth Circuit. The Fifth Circuit ruled against uh, whole women's health. Whole women's health went back and refiled the suit. And the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals um, on appeal had a fit about that, rightly so, and said there's no way this, this case should be before us again. A race judicata principles should have uh, prevented it uh, from going forward. Well, it got up to the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court reversed the Fifth Circuit on those grounds. Now, the four conservative justices in the case, they had a fit about the issue. And the, five, uh, the four liberals plus Kennedy just kind of waved their hands away at it a little bit. Why do I bring that up? Because I think, one, there is an issue about membership, and we can surely get into that in a second. But two, I think there's a bit of payback uh, in this case as well. I think some of the conservative justices said, hey, you're going to play fast and loose with legal principles and whole women's health in 2016. Well, we're going to do it too. What's good for the goose is good for the gander. Now that we're looking at this new membership under this new iteration of the Warren Court, what do you predict? Or do you, do you see the Chief Justice kind of taking on his new role as the swing voter? Yeah. So, um, so, so where do I see the justices on this? So keep in mind, um, <clears throat> it takes four justices to grant review to a case at the Supreme Court. Now, I can guarantee uh, as much as one can that none of the four liberal justices voted to grant review in this case. So then it leaves you with the five more conservative justices. Now, out of those five, the one that I think is least likely to have voted to grant review in this one is the chief. Why? Um, because I think the, the Fifth Circuit's decision here, um, you, you could make the argument that the Fifth Circuit just simply failed to respect high court precedent. Um, and the, now that, that's not something that the chief is going to like very much, right? The chief is, I think, uh, among all of the justices on the court, the chief is the most institutionalist. 
which isn't surprising because he's the chief. Um, so on the one hand, you've got him uh, not happy that the Fifth Circuit essentially ignored the high court. On the other hand, um, you know, you can imagine that his preferences are probably to undo whole women's health. So where does the case come down? It's, it's tough to say. Uh, there's a very strong argument that the chief might join the, five, uh, the four liberals in this, in this case and just say, look, whole women's health settles this matter. On the other hand, um, possible that the chief could join the four liberals and say that whole women's health decides this case. It's also possible, however, that he could say, wait a second, whole woman's health involved essentially, I don't want to say a cost-benefit analysis, but like a balancing test, right? What are the benefits of the admitting privileges law versus the burdens it imposes on women? And that is, at minimum, a question of law and fact. So what you could envision the chief doing here is saying, we have to make these decisions state by state, right? We can't just decide that in Texas, the admitting privileges law had very little benefits and apply that to Louisiana. We might have to look at Louisiana separately. We might have to look at Massachusetts separately. We might have to look at Alabama separately. Right. So you can imagine this being a case where he says, look, whole women's health was right. We do respect precedent. But the facts of the matter are that admitting privileges could mean something in one state and something different in another state. And so one size doesn't necessarily fit all in this constitutional jurisprudence that could potentially honor the, the you know, the, 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 the principle of federalism a little bit more than a one size fits all proposition. Um, it's not altogether clear which way the chief is going to come down on it, uh, but I, I suspect that he is torn uh, on this quite, um, quite, quite a bit. Yeah, fair enough. So obviously right now the Supreme Court is not hearing any cases and likely won't for quite a bit. Um, what does that mean for this case and other cases? Well, it doesn't mean anything for this case. Um, the court already heard oral argument in this, so it'll be... Uh, the court will be able to rule finally on everything that it uh, that it heard already. Now, the question then is, how will it proceed uh, in terms of the cases that it's postponed? And we don't know yet. Um, I think the, the, so. The, on April third, the court said that it would, if it had to issue another round of postponements, that it would begin to look into alternative ways to decide cases. And it's not clear what it meant by that. Um, it could be that they postpone cases until next term when hopefully this stuff will be done. Uh, it could be alternatively that they're going to uh, engage in streaming uh, oral arguments. So it could just be uh, oral, uh, like an audio component, uh, or it could be an audio visual component. Now, the interesting thing, at least for people like me, who study the courts is that the justices, almost all of them, with a couple of exceptions, are uh, and have been for many years now um, just dramatically opposed to cameras in the courtroom. And I think personally, I think they've got good grounds to be skeptical of this. You're going to have an hour of oral argument and the media, if there is visual of it, the media will grab one 15 second clip and misrepresent what the court does. You know that they will. Um, and so I, I think that justices have reason to be skeptical of this. But the fact is, is that COVID-19 may actually force them into 
holding, uh, you know, visual and audio oral arguments against their, their, their best wishes. So we'll see what happens moving forward. They, they have to do something to address this. I don't think postponement is going to solve their problems because if we're in this again in the fall, uh, you know, now we've got a backlog of cases. Yeah. Thank you very much. Yeah. Um, so now we're going to move into a question about the uh, DNC convention and kind of thinking about what's going to happen for the general presidential election. Um, mm -hmm. So the DNC convention in Milwaukee was delayed and presidential candidate Joe Biden said he thought that the convention may not happen at, at all and instead may have to be a virtual event. Uh, what do you make of this? Well, it's tough. It's a tough loss for the businesses um, in, in Milwaukee and the Milwaukee area. Um, I know that uh, Milwaukee was really gearing up for it. I know that, that UW-Madison, we were looking at doing a lot of things uh, to try to put the spotlight on the UW and just all of the general things that it does. So, you know, there's a tremendous economic loss to the state into the Milwaukee area that's very difficult to, uh, you know, to, 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 to quantify it, but it is going to be large. Uh, you know, in terms of the political dynamics of it, too, you know, it's it's tough, right? Because a lot of these candidates, um, they they really value the in-person contact, the retail politicking that they can get when you come to a state like Wisconsin, Michigan, Pennsylvania that are uh, swing states. You know, that 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 means a lot, right? People people often talk about one of the reasons why Hillary Clinton lost in 2016 was her failure to come to uh, Wisconsin. Um, I think there's some truth to that. I don't want to overstate it, but I, I definitely think there's a lot of truth to it. So, um, you know, what does it mean for the candidates? It's going to make it a little bit tougher for them. Um, now, obviously, voters now have a different metric by which they can gauge these candidates. Um, but, you know, if you're looking at just the raw politics of it, uh, I think it does make it a little bit harder for some of these candidates. Um, and then in regards to the presidential election, constitutionally, it seems pretty hard to delay the November election. Is mm -hmm. there a pathway for that to happen? To delay the election? Yeah, or an alternative? Yeah, I, I don't think that's going to happen now, right? Like, I mean, none of us thought that the delay was going to happen in Wisconsin either. But, uh, you know, it's so far out right now that I think people can prepare, can be, begin to prepare for what would happen uh, in you know the unlikely event that this continues on until November, um, you know, I, I it, it's tough, right? I mean, these candidates again, they plan for certain things, they spend money on it. Voters plan on certain dates. Uh, you know, there are a lot of offices that have to turn over in certain time periods. So if we don't hold an election at the scheduled time, uh, you know, it really throws a monkey wrench into things. So uh, I, I can't. I can't imagine at this point that anybody would postpone an election um, at the national level, um, certainly when right now we're swimming in everything and we can figure out how to deal with it. Thanks for giving your insight on that. Professor Owen, thanks so much for being here and for talking to 1050 Baskin when you hope we can check in with you uh, in the coming months as I'm sure these things develop and we have more questions to ask. Yeah, well, that'd be great. I appreciate your time. For more information regarding the podcast, please visit policy.wisc.edu and search for 1050 Bascom. For more information on the university's policies and responses to the pandemic, please visit covid19.wisc.edu. You can find more episodes on all streaming platforms. And if you enjoyed this episode, please rate, follow, and subscribe. Thanks for listening to 1050 Bascom, COVID-19.
Stay safe and take care of each other.